0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the
1: Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Caught Off Guard Knockreiner. I didn't have time, (laughs) my my brain paused, and I didn't think of a little middle section to my name. So I could hear the gears turning. (laughs) Probably, they haven't been oiled for a while, they were pretty darn (laughs) squeaky. It's like, I don't think they, they barely turned with all that rust. Well, anyways, on today's episode, we will be discussing the
0: cybersecurity skills gap and what the U.S. government is trying to do to at least partially address it. Then we will discuss a little more of what the U.S. is trying to do about this kind ca- and in this time, uh, privacy. And finally, we will end with an update on Microsoft's blocking of VBA macros and office documents. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and creak our way in. So, I wanted to start this week with a chat about the cybersecurity skills gap, which I think we've talked about a few times over the years. Uh, but it basically boils down to there are too many open job positions in the cybersecurity space for the amount of people in the workforce. So, in fact, uh, IC, Square, IC Square did a study last year uh, where they found that the cybersecurity workforce is about 65% of what it needs to be, which equates to around 2.7 million unfilled positions. And we've talked about this uh, historically with uh, in the context of like MSPs and MSSPs, where this is where you can help provide value to organizations that can't afford or can't find a cybersecurity professional. Um, but it's become such a significant problem that now even the U.S. government is taking a stab at trying to address it. Uh, so just last week, the U.S. Department of Commerce announced a plan to help address it. Uh, with the creation of what they're calling a 120-day cybersecurity apprenticeship sprint. And basically, the goal of it is to promote this registered apprenticeship model uh, as a solution to help develop and train cybersecurity workers. Uh, They listed a few other goals. They want to advance diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and accessibility across the cybersecurity, all cybersecurity occupations. Uh, they want to educate the public on the efforts of the Department of Labor's Office of, of Apprenticeship uh, and it's uh, the steps it's taking to help um, employers explore registered apprenticeships. Uh, they're trying to recruit employers to explore registered uh, apprenticeships as well. And they're trying to connect career seekers with cybersecurity apprenticeship programs. So let's take a step back first and talk about like apprenticeships. So I feel like, I don't know, Correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but I feel like these aren't super popular in the U.S. compared to how popular they are overseas. Like, I know apprenticeships in Europe are widely used across a lot of um, different types of uh, of fields, especially in some of the more, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, mechanical fields, the more trade skill focused areas. Um, But in the U.S., like, I mean, at least in IT and cybersecurity, I personally... Didn't encounter many apprenticeship opportunities uh, back in my early days. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Corey?
1: Yeah, I I, I hear the term uh, internship a lot more in corporate U.S. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a master on the difference between apprenticeship or internship, but I think apprenticeships are pretty much pretty structured Training plans. I mean, the whole goal is to to train someone to become a one day a master at it. Uh, whereas an internship is often not as structured with that end goal. I, I mean, I, I assume it has an end goal of of eventually getting a job there, but it's less structured and more kind of just letting you start with entry level work versus having an exact plan that once you go through the apprenticeship, you come out with a very specific. Training and hopefully start mastering the skills for that. I so, think that's you, you, yeah. like,
0: a lot of organizations treat like uh, internships are very common across the US and like different organizations treat them differently. Like, some use them as basically low skilled, low paid, uh, or at least untrained workforce uh, to do like the busy work on different job roles. Uh, some organizations actually do a good job of proactively trying to train up folks during internship programs that. Typically, you know, only last like a summer in between school terms. Um, The Department of uh, Labor, though, so they actually have a definition for registered apprenticeships. And it's basically it's a program that offers tax incentives in exchange for hiring a untrained or undertrained individual and training them conforming to a standard. And so for the cybersecurity one, uh, they're pitching NIST's uh, National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education or NICE framework as a a training model to follow. And it seems like the goal is basically to convince organizations to take a tax incentive, get someone that doesn't necessarily have any experience, do the work of training them, which is where that tax incentive comes in to make it worth it. And at the end of the day, you've got a new, trained, uh, ready to go professional already on your team, basically. It kind of makes sense when you think about it like that.
1: No, no, it sounds like a neat idea. I guess the, the question is, the what is the tax incentive? I mean, uh, ultimately, this is having, I presume, businesses and organizations do it, meaning this isn't an apprenticeship that the government is offering. The U- US Department of Commerce doesn't have an apprenticeship you can sign up for This is them encouraging, uh, you know, giving a standard and encouraging companies, organizations to have apprenticeships and to pay for it, like you say, give tax incentives. But I'm curious, was there, how much detail is it on the tax incentive? Because I, it's already in a business's best interest to find cybersecurity professionals already through whatever means they can, whether it's internship, I feel like the tax incentives would have to be really good for a business to invest money in an apprenticeship. I mean, if they do it right, the takeaway is good because they, they train their own employees and they get a good tax incentive. But to me, it all depends on what exactly is that tax incentive.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll admit my eyes kind of glaze over anytime I hear the word tax and I just kind (laughs) of stop paying attention. Uh, so <laughs> I would have to imagine it's worth it somewhat because they did actually list several hundred organizations that are already a part of the program. And I mean, like you said, it's I feel like it it works for a specific type of organization that like has the bandwidth to be able to train people to come in. Like it it would be great for us to say, like, you know, yeah, we will absolutely start an apprenticeship program, but part of that is actually conforming to a standard of training someone uh and like the skill sets for cybersecurity with like a potentially structured training and someone at least that has the bandwidth to mentor them through that process. And I mean, part of the issue with the whole cyber skill ga- skills gap in the first place is that we don't have enough people for all the work that's out there. And I don't know about you, but I mean, sometimes I feel like barely have enough time to get my own work done, let alone train someone else up. So I can see why this isn't a massively popular program and why they're spending some money to try and convince businesses to come on Uh, I don't know. I I hope it works because 2.7 million unfilled positions is kind of nuts. And it's not like cybersecurity is a bad career field. Like it's awesome.
1: By the way, that's a, a very high, horrible number. I do feel like, by the way, I, I, ISC Squared releases this information a lot. I feel like it went down a little. One of the global stats I remember for this, which I think came from them before, was right around 3 million before. So still a bad number, but it seems to have come, come down some, it looks like. Yeah, and the report they mentioned it came down about 60,000 or so in that year. So
0: yeah, making progress, but still only 65% of open positions filled is not great for a pretty critical industry.
1: To give you an idea, you mentioned they have a list of ones, but I was playing around and doing a search for Washington within a thousand miles of us, Mark, or at least WatchGuard Technologies, and only two come up that have an apprenticeship program. One is the pre-existing Microsoft Leap Apprenticeship, and another is from a company called Apprenti, Uh, but they also point out whether or not the apprenticeship program is is any apprenticeship program as opposed to this 2022 sprint. And and it doesn't look like either of those. You know, I, I think the sprint announcement is too early to see how many of those folks are well, well, maybe you can tell me from the list you found, but it, it doesn't is look at like.
0: The time of this recording, I think only a couple hours or a day old or so. So you're right. Yeah, uh, it's very, very early, and it might be interesting to revisit this in 120 days and see, you know, potentially how many organizations yeah, did join work. up on this one. Yeah, who knows? Maybe I'll have a chat with Precaution see if we can get some tax money to uh, get some apprentices <laughs> in here. Absolutely. But like. I feel like anything like at this point, we need to do something to address the skills gap and like, what are other things organizations can do? Like, I know we work regularly with local colleges to try and help out <laughs> and at least get kids or I call them kids. I'm not
1: that much older than them. Uh, get young adults bought into cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, but you used the pop pop
1: corey do. term that i would be the ones calling them kids you're right on mark i mean that's the one i the one i've seen work the best i've seen you know we've done it our partners have done it uh but you can even see it in big companies like if you if you go to any colleges Cisco materials are often on the, you know, um, on the list of things you can learn because Cisco has done a good job of getting into education, into college. Uh, you know, they, they offer services to help people learn Cisco specific stuff for instance because they know uh, you know everyone wants to do that because even for non-security it's heavily used in it for networking and the benefit to them is they're introducing a all those students and getting them very familiar with the product which you know not only helps them potentially hire those students one day themselves but even if the students work for other companies they know and prefer Cisco stuff. So uh, for security, I think it's the same thing. If a company really wants to help find the new security talent, if, if they work with colleges and somehow try to get you know, it can't just be about your product. It has to be a very something educational where you're giving them general knowledge and you're, you're helping the college, you know, by maybe having experts come teach classes and help out. But the benefit is sometimes you do get to use your product as an example. And that don't, not only helps train your new workforce of potential candidates that can get a job with you. You know, if, if you are a vendor of products or services, it also, you know, you can use your stuff as a demo and it gets people familiar. So to me, I, I think getting involved with educational institutes early is, is like you said, really one of the best ways.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it totally makes sense from a sales perspective too, in Cisco's case, where, you know, if you're training up a student on Cisco and they, they finish up college, they go work for a company and it comes time to buy new networking equipment, they're already trained up on one brand. Which one do you think they're going to suggest, basically? So I feel like, I mean, it's obviously it's not free to uh, for an organization to go help out in universities like that. It costs hours. It costs money. costs potential uh, uh, like products to go actually fit into those classrooms. Um, but like there is a benefit of getting folks trained up and just getting, in this case, cybersecurity out there on everyone's minds and hopefully getting some more people to come join the dark side.
1: It's been happening slowly, too. I, I used to definitely in my day, which I am I am an old dude, but I guess I was, you know, in college around 20, 24 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, there weren't many cybersecurity specific university or high school programs, at least some of the, you know, and maybe it's a long tail of because, you know, some of the folks trying to find jobs now are, are you know, maybe you're looking for more experienced folks to fill this cybersecurity skill gap. So you're looking at uh, a older employee, like not 40, but like a 30 year old employee, cause you're looking for certain levels of higher experience. There weren't lots of ways to learn about cybersecurity other than on your own. Back when, you know, back in those university days, I will say the past 10 years, there's a lot of cybersecurity programs in universities. So I wonder if some of this is just going to eventually catch up as as the folks that have been learning cybersecurity officially in schools start to apply for more and more jobs and, you know, I guess that you might have to start as entry level, but I think maybe some of the higher jobs that aren't being filled because people are looking for more experience, just naturally will start getting people that have more of that you know, knowledge because they were in college at the time when there were formal cybersecurity programs being taught. It, it I, I don't think they've shown up on, on many of the, you know, college syllabuses until, you know i guess 10 years isn't that recent but some some colleges have just adopted them even more recently than that so it might just take a while for that to catch up well, maybe but it, it's just it needs a to it, time, yeah it has to be a subject that has to it has to be formally taught in schools now it's big enough for that and i don't think it was big enough you know, twenty or thirty years ago, simply because technology and cybersecurity is relatively yeah, I know it's been around for multiple decades for us graybeards, but it's relatively new in the you know human history, and even technology. Shoot, I had to I had to use a modem, Mark. I had to listen to this horrible sound just to connect to this weird thing called the. I had AOL CDs. I can still remember those. They definitely were not teaching cyber. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So uh, it will catch up. uh, But I guess this is a good way to try to accelerate it until we get there.
0: Yep, 100%. Maybe we'll check in in 120 days and see if this specific program has helped out at all. Um, So moving on, uh, one of our predictions from I think two years ago now seems to be very close to coming true. Uh, so the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee voted last Wednesday to advance the American Data Privacy Protection Act to a full floor vote sometime early next week. Next week being the week that you are probably listening to this. Uh, so this new legislation is the U.S. government's first major attempt to codify individuals' data privacy at a federal level. Uh, it's 64 pages long, Um, The framework has a number of changes uh, designed to basically ultimately give users more control over their data. Um, A few of the things, so it requires companies to limit data collection, similar to GDPR. Um, It allows consumers to turn off targeted advertisements, which is kind of neat. Grants protections against discriminatory uses of data. So different machine learning models that may categorize people based off of race, sex, whatever. Um, it also reins in some third-party data collection as well, too. Um, and one thing that was actually kind of interesting, it also includes special protections for biometric data. Uh, so companies can only collect and share biometric data under specific instances, uh, such as when responding to a warrant uh, or with affirmative consent from the individual. Um, so it sounds like great on the face of it. It's this big old privacy-focused legislation that is coming to the vote on the House floor here uh, this week as you're listening to this. Uh, But on the flip side, it doesn't sound like it's as great as it could be, and it definitely doesn't sound anywhere near uh, what the GDPR protections provide for the European Union citizens. Um, So some organizations like the ACLU, they applaud some parts of the bill for making meaningful progress beyond the notice and consent uh, side of uh, privacy protections. Um, But they still criticize a lot of major flaws in it. Uh, So a couple examples of that, there's one loophole that requires data collection uh, to comply with state laws, which sounds good on the face of it, Uh, but critics are pointing out that this could allow organizations and states that have banned things like abortion to continue collecting sensitive information on like women, as an example. Uh, The bill also includes an exception for de-identified data, so anonymized data, which, again, sounds good on the face of it because, you know, it's anonymized, can't be tied back to me. Uh, But the ACLU and even the FTC have pointed out that the whole de-anonymized or de-identified data thing is a bit of a myth, and it's actually really easy to de-anonymize it and tie it back to an individual. Um, So several lawmakers also expressed concern on this specific exception, saying the bill is weak on all parts of the data brokerage ecosystem. And then finally, uh, the bill generally preempts state uh, privacy frameworks like California's CCPA, uh, which actually has stronger privacy protections, including allowing California residents to pursue damages for data violations. This law would supersede that. Um,
1: that To me, uh, that that sounds weird. That sounds like like you say. I I mean, it's weird that on one hand it sounds like there's loopholes to let state law come first specifically for the you know banned abortion type stuff so there there's like there's little ways where you can do state law first whereas meanwhile ccpa which is a state law and one that i i I think you know is one that is very gdpr like and is probably a a a stronger one like you say that it preempts so i it's weird how it lets some state laws come first but it's screwing up the one that actually is pretty good it's even more interesting
0: so it's Indiana or Illinois, I think it's Illinois, uh, has a law around biometric information and how to do, uh, privacy rights around storing and using biometric information. And this new federal law actually cuts out a bit to say, you know, that, that one takes precedence in that state. So they do it for some, not for others like California. It's really, it's interesting. Like, I mean, on the face of it, it feels like preempting state law makes sense if you're going to have stronger protections across the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Like it's granting Yeah. It, Better rights or better protections for individuals? Yes, preempt state law. But this doesn't sound like the right way of doing it in that scenario. Um,
1: I wonder if, if it, I think... I, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, As goodness, I don't know if you're getting to it, but it, it my, my biggest worry here, but it's one I, I think I already have an answer to, is whether or not... Who cares if this committee is actually making progress, whether it's good or bad, the way the house and senate are is this even going to pass but it sounds like this bill has a chance so i i wonder if some of that weirdness is in order to get it to have the bipartisan support they had to do all the the back and forth that allowed this weird in one case state law's good in another case state law's not good so maybe it has to do with getting support the support in the House. Yeah.
0: So it's got a decent chance. But interestingly, so of the people you'd expect to support a bill like this, like some of the privacy champions in Congress historically, like Senator Wyman uh, out of Oregon and a representative, is it Representative or Senator Patty Murray out of Washington? Uh, historically, they've been proponents of pushing privacy protection bills like this, but they're actually against this one because of a lot of the loopholes in it. So, Not good enough. Yeah. yeah. But that said, like not good enough but is something better than nothing in this like is this something we could build off of over the next 20 years because that's how long it takes to get anything done in this country or is it better to just not do a half a worded measure measure in the first place
1: that seems like a politic podcast mark in that i mean (laughs) i you could go both ways right i mean one say it, it uh, I think you and i would agree we would like to see a uh, federal level of, of consumer privacy laws i i have i'm starting to have issues with gdpr there's some areas with it where I think it's overly restrictive and it's causing innovation problems without necessarily getting the protection for consumers that that I think we want but you and i uh, correct me if I'm wrong we support consumer privacy. So I would like to see something federally get passed, but the the political podcast would talk about the state of our our, our country right now, where it seems like uh, there's this 50-50 polarization where nothing's going to get passed. So if you pass something that's not good enough that you really want to change, if you pass anything, there's probably no chance of anything new coming anytime soon, unless the political you know, balance in this country changes quite a bit, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I, I guess I could argue it both ways. You know, if if I really didn't think this was good enough, I'm not sure I'm gonna get an opportunity to have a federal privacy addendum or any new laws within the next decade. So is it how bad are these little exceptions? And you know i i haven't read this in full detail you'd have to think about it uh i i like that they're talking about it though i you and i do think we need a a federal level privacy like bill so it's a good thing they're talking about it and they're doing the compromise um unfortunately with all of these the devil is really in the details and it's going to be
0: interesting too because again putting on the political hat just a little bit longer like the reason roe v wade was struck down at a high level was actually Striking down a precedent that uh, we have a right to privacy is basically what it boils down to. And so if you take that over to this law, does that mean that like a state could potentially or a company could challenge this and find this one to be unconstitutional as well, too? Like it's it's a bit of a yeah. sketchy situation we're in right now when it comes to privacy in this country. And so I like to see thoughts of progress, but I don't have high hopes of this personally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm with you. And, and another way to put it with Roe v. Wade is Roe v. Wade is a sign that uh, at least our judicial system is trying to give more power back to states and less to Fed. And that's why some of this confuses me. It's a federal bill, and yet it's going back and forth with state power over Fed power, which preempts which. So I, I you know, uh, I don't know how our Congress is. Our Congress is pretty evenly split, and it's hard to get anything back. But judicially, obviously, the. They, the judges, the Supreme Court is, is weighing more towards state power.
0: But I mean, on the, at the end of the day, though, like this does, at least
1: it's some
0: meaningful progress. It's, it's not perfect. Uh, there are a lot of loopholes, but there are some things that does get right. And I, as much as I don't feel like it's going to make a massive change, I do. I do feel like something is better than nothing in this case. And maybe in 20 years when we've all kind of chilled out collectively as a country, we can make some more progress on making it potentially better. That said, like, so it's going to go to a vote in the House uh, at probably around the time you're listening to this episode. It very well might just go straight into a brick wall in the Senate. So who knows? Um, But they're talking about it. That's good.
1: Um, so and, and by the way, cybersecurity and privacy really should not be political. I, I, they, we need to find a way to to figure out how to secure our privacy and to help companies be protected from online threats as well. And uh, it, it's it, it really should be an issue that is easy to be bipartisan about.
0: And I think like the good news in that area is that just about everyone, no matter what color your political t-shirt is hates companies like Meta and the data gathering that they do (laughs) and I feel like the last like 10 years of just crap that has come about from like Meta, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, they're uh, testifying in front of Congress, like all that stuff has kind of brought this into the forefront and maybe can get people on either side to start working together to fix it.
1: Everyone except for the big business that America is full of that's making money off our privacy. Unfortunately, uh i i shouldn't say this for political but if you there's a one per the reason this exists is because someone who is super rich is making money off of your privacy and they don't want to lose that uh, so i wouldn't say everyone hates it because obviously someone with a lot of money and power seems to be making it harder for us to regain privacy
0: that's a very good sobering and sad point
1: <laughs>
0: sorry but <laughs> meaningful progress we'll see um so last thing we wanted to chat about this week is actually a bit of a quick update uh where we mentioned it on the fly i think in the last episode uh talking about how microsoft had stopped their rollout of auto-blocking macros and office documents downloaded from untrusted sources
1: flippity floppity flippity floppity Keep going, yes. sorry. If people were wondering why I'm shaking my head while you were talking, it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> You'll find out. Well,
0: as of today, uh, that when we we're recording this, Microsoft has restarted their rollout of auto-blocking VBA macros in downloaded Office documents after they had temporarily paused it uh, because of feedback from their users that their documentation really wasn't up to snuff. So they paused for a bit revamp some of their documentation to make it better for end users to know what to do in situations where their macros are blocked. And now they are starting this new rollout of auto-blocking macros. Um, so there's a few caveats to this. Uh, the new policy only affects organizations that have never manually tinkered with uh, the the policy setting of block macros from running in Office files from the internet. Uh, so if you have tinkered with that, it's not going to do anything. Uh, it'll leave whatever settings you currently have. If you have not touched that, like I'd go ahead and say, an overwhelming majority of at least small businesses, uh, this will haven't. at least now block uh, macros in Office documents when they're downloaded from untrusted sources, a la the internet or uh, web emails. Um, and it also kind of changes how they're blocked too. So with macros for the last, I feel like it's been probably 10 years now, when you open one of them up that's been downloaded from the internet, you get that yellow security ribbon at the top. It says security warning, macros have been disabled, and you have a button for enabling content. Uh, Now, uh, you get this new red ribbon that says security risk. Microsoft has blocked macros from running because the source of this file is untrusted, and it's got a link to learn more. There's not actually a way to allow them to run in that button anymore. And I think this is overall like a fantastic step. Uh, Because like you, me, probably everyone listening to this, we know not to click that button when we get a random Word document from an email that we've for some reason accidentally opened. But it's pretty easy for folks to, uh, for criminals to put text in that thing to say, oh, hit that button up there, uh, enable this content in order to view your statement or whatever and trick just everyday users into clicking it and suddenly they've got fileless malware running on their system. So just the fact of not letting users shoot themselves in the foot I think it's a great step. What are your thoughts on that, Corey?
1: Absolutely. But that was their (laughs) default before they rolled it back too. I, I, I guess, maybe I'm being a security purist here in that they rolled it back because obviously some users were too dumb to get it. Didn't understand the docs and complained, I just want it to work and I'm sorry for those type of users, it shouldn't work because they're probably the ones that are enabling it. Like it, it's for your own good friend. It's, I know the docs may not be good. I like, you're right though. I do like all these changes, all of these changes, the updated uh, message, the new documentation, the way they're making it easier for the users that apparently had documentation complaints and that's why they wanted macros to be automatically allowed. I'm glad they made (laughs) the changes to fix those users. I just don't think they should have turned it off at all. I would, uh, you know, I I guess it's, if you have enough of those customers, you respond to money, but I would have told those customers, hey, (laughs) we're doing this for your own good. We will update our documentation eventually so that you have a better understanding of this, and then you can make a better choice for what your global setting is. But uh, we're going to keep auto-blocking Because if you're the one complaining that it should work because documentation is bad, you're probably the one that is clicking enable too. So to Microsoft's
0: credit, their new docs, like when you hit that learn more link, they're actually pretty good for a untrained user. Like it starts with just these three bullet points of saying, what can I do with this? It says like, were you expecting to receive a file with macros? Are you being encouraged to enable content by a stranger? Are you being encouraged to enable content by a pop-up message? Like all the things that, you That's should be great about advice it not yeah. it's fantastic and
1: you don't um, you don't they, always see it like that you do, you know if we're talking about it short we just say hey if you don't know if you're not expecting this document don't click it that additional detail like you said is really good for like uh, I, I hate to I'm sure there's actually grandmas out there that know more about uh, that are like coding ninjas, but for the you know the the non-technical, sophisticated folks of the world, that puts it in very simple context they can understand. So, like I said, I agree with you. All all the additions they made to it is great. I just wish they never. I wish they they kept the default the way it was through this whole period of time. I mean, it's only been a few weeks. They could have left the default, dealt with those complaining users and re- still released this change to the documentation to solve the issue.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you on principle, but at the same time, like just to be devil's advocate, there are a lot of people in this world that use Microsoft Office and they probably just saw something break and freak the heck out. And I probably blew up Microsoft's lines enough for them to do this change. I'm no, I so, get it.
1: We, if you, we've both been on the support side of things too, where eventually you just have to be, okay guys, you wanted it. Here you go.
0: What do you mean it blocked my access to this website because it's hosting malicious advertisements? Just yes. let me go.
1: I just don't want to have to deal with it. Let me go to any site I want always. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um. So if you do encounter one of these block documents, uh, while you can no longer click that enable content button, you can actually still get around it uh, and allow those macros to run. So like, let's say you do download a a uh, a document laced with macros like legitimate ones from like your company uses it was just hosted somewhere untrusted Uh, in order to get around it you just right click on the document go to properties under the general tab at the bottom there's this security box now that basically does the same thing that button used to do there's checkbox that just says allow macros to run security considerations whatever so you can do it on an individual document basis that way you can also add sites to your trusted sites uh, locations Uh, By going to your Internet Options and then Internet Properties and Security tab, and you'll see a trusted sites list in there. You can add a new website in there, a new share location, whatever. And now anything, any documents that get downloaded from there won't be tagged with this uh, protection measure. So there are still, and of course, if you run a domain, you can set up the policy to do whatever the heck you want across your organization or even to specific user groups. Like it might make sense to lock down macros to some users while allowing like finance or uh, accounting to have access to their own macros too. Same time, probably makes sense to block macro-laced documents from untrusted sources everywhere. Uh, yep. Because in theory, Absolutely. your legitimate ones will be passed around from trusted sources. But, anyways, I, I think I'm with you on this one, Corey. Better late than never, but it is a bit late.
1: I yeah, I'm, I'm glad they made the changes to document. Ultimately, this is even better. Uh, as far as the teaching and and while we didn't go into it in this detail, notice this was one of the big takeaways from our internet security report. We're still seeing you know office based malware documents and spreadsheets using you know uh, having enabled you know active content like macros and in, in one of our practical tips we mentioned from a global group policy standpoint, Microsoft does already have really good documentation on how you can allow legitimate macros pretty easily while blocking. Like you said, the very specific granular detail you can go into. So there's links in our report where you can see Microsoft's, you know, detail on how to really lock down macros in general. And I presume even that has been updated.
0: Yep. hundred percent. Um, so actually before we sign off today, one more thing I want to throw out there, uh, Corey, me, and the whole team are going
1: to like You're like like Stephen Jobs at the end of... uh, Or whoever does it now. Back One more thing at the end of the Mac keynote 10 years ago.
0: And this is just as good as one of those Apple reviews. (laughs) (laughs) So Corey, I, and the whole Threat Lab team are going to be at Black Hat and DEF CON this year. Um, So if you as a listener are there, we encourage you to come find us. Corey is the weird-looking tall guy. I'm the weird-looking short guy. Um, And most importantly... We are running our Capture the Flag contest again this year in person, and that does include cool new digital badges. Um, so we'll probably chat about more on that maybe in the next episode.
1: They're um, the coolest badges we've had, too. I can't wait. I don't want to spoil any teeth, but it, it, it's uh, do we, we've this is our fourth year of ba- our fourth badge, Mark, or I think our first badges. One, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's they they upped it quite a bit, the, the folks that helped us design these, including Andrew Young and his son. Uh, really cool. You'll want to see them if you're there. Uh, if you have no idea what we're talking about, we will go into this a bit more in detail, probably
0: closer to Black Hat and DEF CON. But uh, for those that have been waiting for in-person hacker conferences and hacker summer camp like we have been, uh, it's good to be back. That's for sure.
1: Absolutely. So hopefully... Let's just hope there's no Omnicrom XYZ two four six eight one point four that suddenly explodes right at the beginning of August. Thanks. uh you jinxed (laughs) it. Oh no! I'm gonna show up in a hazmat suit now. (laughs) Yes, I don't care. That's a good. That's that's a good strategy. Let's go anyway. I think,
0: like you, I'm just excited to be going in person again. Uh, It's It's going to be as much as I hate going to Vegas for an extended period of time, I'll actually feel a little good about going to Vegas this time again for the first time. It'd be nice
1: to see the community. So yeah, check it out and
0: more on that later. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at Secadept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.
1: By the way, we also take recommendations over RFC 2549, IP over it. carrier pigeon? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) We have a roof at WatchGuard. We'll get the message.
0: It's not a bad idea. (laughs)